season three of my podcast. Today, my guest is Peter Hatcher, an Australian journalist and the political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. He was previously the Tokyo and the Washington DC correspondent for Australian Financial Review. He has won many awards, including the Australian Journalism Award, the Gold Walkley. He is also an author and has published many books. Hi, Mr. Hatcher. Welcome to my show. Hello, Curious for Dan. I'm very pleased to be here. Even I'm really happy that you're here. I've interviewed another journalist. Was he or she interesting? Yeah, she was interesting. And this one, I hope it'll be interesting too. Now, I'm a boring old guy. I'm glad you did someone interesting, but then you can get a balance. Sorry, it'll be <laughs> fine. So, Mr. Hatcher, you have worked in Tokyo, where people don't speak much English. I'm curious to know if you learn Japanese before going there. Well, Vidant, in the news business, everything is a bit last minute. So I was pretty lucky to have even uh, one year to get to do some study of Japanese language in my spare time before I had to go. But of course, it wasn't enough. So I had lots of awkward situations and funny situations. I remember one time with another Australian guy, we went to a restaurant where we couldn't read the menu and didn't know how to order the food they had. So there was only one thing we could we knew how to order. It was fried prawns or fried shrimp. And so we ate a lot of fried prawns that night. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. In my school, we have a few Japanese children in my class and I'm learning a little bit of Japanese from them. Very wise of you. How many languages do you speak? Well, I speak many, but wait, let me count. So there's Hindi, a little bit, English, then my mother tongue, Tamil, then Chinese, and a little bit of Japanese, like only one word. I'm very impressed and I'm very humbled. <laughs> Thank you. There are so many things happening in Japan. How did you decide what was newsworthy for your Australian readers? Mainly interested in the big developments, big things going on with Japanese politics or the Japanese economy. In the years that I was working there, Japan's economy became extremely big and everybody was started to get a bit worried that Japan was going to take over the whole world. But then Japan's economy collapsed and now nobody thinks that anymore. <laughs> yes. But there was also room for other stories too. So sometimes it was dramatic things. I remember there was a, a terrible earthquake in the city of Kobe once. Japan is a very safe place. There's not much crime and people feel very safe, but earthquakes are a problem. Another time I remember I interviewed uh, quite an unusual uh, fellow who was, he was the barber to the emperor. He used to cut the emperor's hair and shave him every morning. And it was Emperor Hirohito, the, the previous emperor. And as you've done, many Japanese think that the emperor is a kind of god. He's a, a man god. And this fellow, this barber, even though he'd been cutting the emperor's hair and shaving him every morning for 40 years, he told me he still got nervous and his hand shook a little bit every time. Wow, that's really interesting. 
cutting the emperor's hair for 40 years. Yes, exactly. And still and still nervous about it. So it just goes to show that if, if any of us are feeling nervous about things at any time, it's completely normal. In Japan, did you experience any earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes? We had small earthquakes, earth tremors all the time. Sometimes you'd have a week where there weren't any. Other times you'd be getting them every day. Mostly they were very slight. You could barely feel them. But sometimes they would give your house or your office a really good shake, and it was a bit scary sometimes. And they told you you should stand in the door frame or hide under a table because you're less likely to get crushed. The whole thing was a little bit scary, but uh, we never experienced uh, any direct, really bad ones. Oh, that's good for you. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Australia and U.S., are on different sides of the globe. When it is today in Australia, it is still yesterday in the US. How does the news reach the other side on time to be published? That's a good question, Badab. We think that in many ways, America is ahead of us, of course, especially with technology and research. But according to the time zone, America is always behind us. Forever. When I worked as a journalist in Washington, D.C., the time zones, as you say, were very different. So what I would do is during the daytime, I would work collecting news and interviewing people. And then I would go home and have dinner with my family. And then when my family is going to bed, people in Australia are just getting into the office and getting interested in, in, in the news. So then I would stay up late at night after midnight every night uh, writing about it to get it to Australia in time for the newspaper deadlines. <laughs> so I had a lot of late nights for that. How was it living in Washington, D.C.? I've been there, and for me, it's really fun with all the museums and everything. I've been to lots of them with my mom. Yes, it's a fabulously rich place in, in museums and monuments and history. We really enjoyed our time there. And we made many American friends. We lived in a very friendly neighborhood. We still have some of our American friends that we made years ago. And for a journalist, Washington is extra interesting. It's like a playground for journalists because there are so many interesting people, important people, powerful institutions, interesting think tanks with lots of interesting debates and research going on. So there was no shortage of things to write about. Especially with the White House and lots of things would be going on there. And did you also get to meet the president? No, I didn't, unfortunately, although I met many of his staff. And this was going back quite a way, actually, now, Vedanth. So we lived there when George W. Bush was the president. And that meant that we had some other pretty interesting experiences. So we were there when the 9-11 terrorist attacks occurred on the Pentagon in Washington and, of course, the World Trade Center in the U.S., uh, in New York. Let's just say it's always an interesting time in Washington, D.C. We get breaking news a lot every now and then, the moment something happens. How do journalists know about events so quickly? Another good question. Sometimes it's because we're expecting an announcement so journalists are in position, ready, waiting. So if it's an announcement about 
I don't know, let's say the government is announcing how much electricity has been used that year, or it's the result of a sport event um, or something that's predictable like that, or the government is making, the prime minister is having a press conference, then everybody is poised, ready, waiting to send the news out as quickly as possible. And we compete, journalists compete with each other to see who can get the news first. But it's also because um, finding out the news first before it's announced, can that can happen too. And journalists do that by having contacts or sources, people who work in the system where the information is coming from, people that you know and people who trust you and who will talk to you usually secretly because they don't want to get in trouble with their bosses, and they'll tell you what's happening before it becomes public. That's nice. It's good when it works, uh, and, and you're the guy who gets the news first. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it does. You have also done investigative journalism. What does that mean? That means that you spend usually spend a lot of time and effort trying to find out deep secrets that countries, companies, governments, or other institutions don't want anybody to know about. The most famous case was of investigative journalism was an American case many years ago when investigative journalists brought down an American president, Richard Nixon, by investigating illegal things that he'd been doing and, and uncovering them. But good media outlets do investigative journalism all the time in Australia's case, the, co the company, the newspaper that I work for in recent years has had some major successes with things like uh, there were many big companies, Vedant, that weren't paying their staff properly. They were deliberately cheating them uh, for years and years, and our reporters uncovered that. And many companies have had to uh, have had to fix the problem and pay their staff properly. That's, that was one good victory. And there are many cases uh, like that where... Uh, reporters spend a lot of time, dig really deep, have to talk to lots of people, look, read lots of documents, dig up secrets, and eventually try to get the right outcome and deliver a bit of fairness. What are some of the investigative journalism things that you have done? One of the main fields I write about is is politics. Uh, some of the main stories or the, the biggest stories that I've broken through investigative work have been about political plots, politicians planning to bring down their leader and take the prime minister's job, things like that. But I've also done some investigative work, for example, on a time when Australia and Indonesia were negotiating a secret uh, treaty. It was a good treaty. It wasn't a bad treaty. But to get all the details on this peace treaty, it took a lot of work and a lot of time. And I did win an award for that one. So all sorts of things. And one of the, one of the attractions of journalism that is... It's, it's always different. There's always something new going on, and it's always pretty interesting. It is very interesting, journalism. In the other journalists that I spoke to, I said that maybe when I grow up, I will be a journalist. You're very curious, and that's the first starting point for anybody who wants to be a journalist. You're already, you've already you got off to a good start. What is your way of differentiating fake news from real news? This is a very topical question these days because the amount of fake news has really proliferated, hasn't it, in recent years with all sorts of crazy people on the internet. Goodness, one of them 
was even the American president for a few years there. So the answer to your question is you tell the difference by checking. And a professional journalist, a credible professional journalist working for a credible news outfit has the time and the contacts to be able to not only look up documents and check facts, but to go around and find the people involved in a situation or a story and track them down and talk to them and, and talk to other people who are involved as well to get different viewpoints, to, to check everything, to make sure that you're getting the real facts. And that's how you tell, that's how you, that's how you tell one type of news fake from real. The US president where you said he, he was one of the crazy people who made fake news. Are you talking about Donald Trump? Absolutely. He's still creating fake news, Vedant. He's still saying that he won the last election, the presidential election in America, when he didn't. So he's still making fake news, even though he's no longer president. But no one believes him. Not very many people, but unfortunately, still some millions in a country of 300 million. A few million isn't too much to worry about. But it's still a shame that people fall for fake news and propaganda. Why do people follow fake news? And don't they know it's fake? I think people like to believe news that reinforces or supports what they already think. So if you decided years ago, for example, that you love Donald Trump and Donald Trump tells you that he's won the election and the other guy didn't, then maybe you, you want to believe Donald Trump so much because you love him that you're going to believe the fake news and not listen to anyone else's viewpoint. And that's a problem if people stop listening to other viewpoints, if they close their minds to alternative views and they don't check the facts, then democracies get into a bit of trouble because democracies rely on ordinary people, ordinary citizens, all of us, finding, finding out the truth, getting real information and acting, acting on real facts. What kind of books do you write? Oh, Vedant, I write very boring books, very boring. Uh, I don't write fiction, unfortunately. I'd love to write stories because that would be much more interesting and fun. But I write boring books about serious things happening in different countries. So I've written a book about Japan, a book about America, a couple of books about Australia. I've just published a book about Australia and China. But it's always serious things about politics, economics. So nothing very exciting, I'm afraid. Sorry to disappoint you. What made you choose to be a journalist? It's funny. When I was young... I used to follow the news. I read the newspaper every morning and I was fascinated. The news always made me really interested. And often I would read about unfair things, unjust things that were happening in the world or happening to people. And I'd get very worked up and, and, and angry and want to fix it. But it never occurred to me that I could be a journalist myself. I thought it was very glamorous and remote and just impossibly hard to get into. And it wasn't until I was until I was an adult that I realized it was even a possibility. How do you train to be a journalist? Well, in my case, I'm a very unusual these days because I've been doing this job for so long. But now for next year, it will be 40 years that I've been working as a journalist. In my case, wow. I, st I started straight out of high school and they uh, spent I spent a couple of years as a trainee. Or they, in those days, they called us cadets learning the basics of how newspapers work, how news works, 
how to type, how to do shorthand, how to interview people, how to write, all of that sort of thing. These days, big media companies will take people, not like me, straight from high school, but they have to have degrees from university, and they generally they'll have to have some experience being published already in some other kind of media. I don't know, maybe doing their own podcast as a kid or something like that. And, and then it's still very tough and competitive to get into, but it's become more competitive over the years. And you're supposed to uh, be pretty much fully formed these days when you arrive in a news company. And there's not a lot of training goes on anymore. The training is now supposed to happen in university courses. What did you want to be as a child? When I was your age, I wanted to be the things that a lot of young boys want to be. I thought about being a police officer. I thought about being a firefighter. And maybe not so common, I thought about being a priest. There was a time when I wanted to be a Catholic priest because one of my brothers, my older, one of my older brothers was a priest, and I thought that looked like a fun thing to do. And then I got a bit boring and thought I should be a lawyer. And I was going to become a lawyer, actually. I was signed up to go to university and study the law. But then I saw a friend applying for a traineeship at the newspaper, and I thought, wow, if he can do that, I can do that. So I did, and that's how I became a journalist. <laughs> Pretty much by chance. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on my show. It's a pleasure, Vedant. It was really exciting. Fun to talk to you. All the best. Thank you. Dear listeners, follow my Facebook page, Curious Vedant, to get updates on my upcoming episodes. To listen at leisure on your phone and get notified about future episodes, subscribe by searching for Curious Vedant wherever you get your podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can also listen to my show on CuriousVedant.com. Thank you for listening to Curious Vedant. And don't forget to rate and leave comments.